after I decided to write Boyish, I came to discover so many areas in my own life and childhood that I had completely forgotten about, which I realized were part of my conditioning. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the shared experiences and non-traditional paths of the South Asian American community. My guest this week is Rajath Mithal, a software engineer and book producer. Rajath is based out of San Francisco and has a plethora of experience in the tech sector, having worked for startups like Lockbox and large companies like Square and eBay. I asked him if he expects South Asians to continue migrating to the U.S. for tech jobs with now thriving tech sectors in cities like Bangalore and Hyderabad. As of 2020, Rajat is a full-time children's book producer, a position that he kind of serendipitously found his way into back in 2012. He started by self-publishing a comic book on menstruation that has now been translated to over 15 languages. His latest projects, She Can, You Can, and Boyish, are focused on breaking gender norms. This conversation brought up some fascinating insights on children's books and representation in India, on how he got pulled into working on a topic like menstruation as a man, and his own journey picking up and breaking conditioning around gender norms. We end with what he hopes to pass on to his son. Follow his work by visiting lifeinafolder.com or by following at Life in a Folder on Twitter and Instagram. Without further ado, Rajat Mittal, welcome to Brown People We Know. I've been super jealous because I keep seeing Instagram posts about California winters. <laughs> it doesn't seem like winter at all. Yeah, it's been, uh, in fact, it's been crazy warm here for the last three, four days, like in the 70s. So it's been not wintry at all. Yeah, that doesn't sound like my Midwest winters at all. Yeah. So why the Bay? Was it because you were working in tech or was it kind of the other way around? You're working in tech because you wanted to go to Cali? I guess it was working in tech and Cali was the place to be, especially San Francisco. I actually started in Arizona. Right after I graduated, I got my first gig in Arizona. I worked there for about a year and then essentially opportunity took me to the San Francisco area. So before we get into your creative projects, I actually kind of want to start in this tech area because you grew up in India, but you moved to the US and now you've worked with big companies like Square and eBay. One of the things I'm curious about is I noticed that a lot of South Asians, a lot of South Asians, especially in America, work in tech. Even a lot of my MBA classmates that are Indian, they're either going into consulting or tech. So I'm curious why you think that is. That's just a manifestation of uh, of the dreams that got sold in the last generation, right? Like, I feel like engineering and medicine were, were such staple professions for the last generation that what we are seeing today is a reflection of that ideology. You know, these are high-paying professions, largely well-respected and kind of stable as well. You know, they're not like you, you sit on a desk and you... It's, these are knowledge-working professions, so easy on your body as well, in, in a way. So there's nothing wrong in it. I, I feel like regardless of whether it's Indians or whosoever, people should be in, <laughs> in these industries. I do certainly feel that that when it comes to our culture and, and Indians as a diaspora, 
we need to change the narrative around it. What do you mean by that? Around? It is definitely a dominant choice. And what it ends up doing is for anyone who doesn't fit in it, at least people from our culture who don't find themselves fitting in it, it could be a stifling experience at after a point, right? And uh, I think this is applicable to anyone, but particularly applicable to someone who sees everyone else of their culture trying to do the same thing. So what sparked your personal passion or your desire to go into tech then? Because it sounds like what you're talking about here is kind of the overarching theme of stability and things that are ingrained in the culture. And I'm wondering if it was that for you or was there a specific field of tech or something else that pulled you in? I'm not going to lie. I think like some of it definitely came from this mindset of getting stability in life, right? And obviously financial independence as well. I come from very humble beginnings, like lower middle class family in India. So my father was an engineer. It was from that perspective, an ideal or a normal choice. But like, I think I saw this very early in my career, even like back when I was an undergrad, that I always was interested in uh, how something like this could intersect culturally and socially with the lives that we live. Thankfully, at least with the internet, that has become more obvious and clear, right? Prior to the internet, if you were to work at a technology firm, how your work intersects with the general lives of people could be very opaque. So I think like the internet especially helped people like me navigate tech, but still maintain their moral compass or still maintain their philosophy of how can I find meaningful work that does tech, but also intersects with other other domains. You mentioned coming from humble beginnings. And I think especially in India, one of the dreams is kind of, you know, to work your way up, go to school and then go to America. Now that you have cities like Bangalore, which are being called the Silicon Valley of India and high tech city in Hyderabad, do you think people are going to continue moving to the US to work tech jobs? Well, I, I do believe that it's going to reduce. I mean, and it's not about that those cities are up and coming tech areas. They've, they've always been. What is changing, in my opinion, in the landscape is that finally India is actually producing sort of these large winners in the technology space that can truly employ or it has the same bar and standards as a top US tech company. So for someone who is savvy enough, they are really good lucrative options as well, once in Bangalore and Hyderabad and whatnot. So I certainly assume that a lot of people who are going to move now to the US would lean a little more on the education side than do any education and, and go for sort of a professional career here. I'm curious, especially because you moved after college, you, you really spent a good chunk of your life in India before coming here. What do you miss most? Oh, it's a whole different world. Uh, and in terms of what I miss most is uh, definitely there are aspects of culture that I miss a lot, right? Like food being one. You'll be surprised, but weather is still, even though people like to complain that it's hot there, but I still think, you know, once you're like born and brought up in that kind of weather, you kind of miss certain good elements of it. Yeah. And I think like the energy is very different, right? Like I like to always say that in India, 
at least one of the things that I that is different between my life in America and life in India is in India all my five senses have to be operational all the time, and there's not a lot of time to really ruminate on on things, right? Which is sometimes actually a blessing because you don't need unnecessarily worry about things which are out of your control. Your day to day life is so engaging, full of events in a way that you don't get bored. <laughs> A few years ago, even though you made this big life transition to come here and work in tech, which you did obviously for a few years, you had a bit of a creative spark. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of tell me what was going through your head at that time? So this is actually uh, about five years in in America, a couple of years of graduate degree and a few years of working experience. And I just didn't feel like the work I was doing was impacting anyone. So I actually took off. I moved back to India for a year. I didn't necessarily have any plans on what I would do, but I just hope I could reconnect with friends and meet new people and just figure out new life experiences. So once I moved back, I reconnected with a few friends and they had this idea of they wanted to make a comic book. And I, at that point, was deep in tech. And while the idea seemed fascinating, I was like, how can I be of help? It just did not make any sense to me. On top of that, the topic of the book was really unconventional, right? And this is me at 27 years old. And still, I felt that the topic was really unconventional. But because these were good friends, I decided to at least say yes. I was like, hey, I'll be helpful in any capacity you would like me to be. And lo and behold, that turned out into almost like a six to seven year long journey with them. Almost about 15 months in a full-time capacity. And after that, I actually moved back to the States and kept working with them on a part-time capacity as well. And just grew the thing from a mere idea to a graphic novel book first, to a graphic novel book in multiple languages, <laughs> and to eventually like a, almost like a small educational venture at this point. You enter this field of creating books, and I feel like there's a lot of different things that you need to understand, whether it's like getting the images, learning about publishers. Mm -hmm. How did you navigate that process? Was it intimidating at all? It was certainly very intimidating. I think because that particular book was self-published, it was even more intimidating to begin with because what we were essentially saying was that we are on our own right by the by the definition of self publishing we actually the first thing that we did which uh, i encourage every creative person to do is in order to like silence that voice at the back of your head which keeps telling you that oh this is way out of your league you really need to gather confidence and you can do that in a few ways one thing that worked really well for us was we put in a lot of hard work in creating like a crowdfunding campaign and where we literally asked people for money. Uh, trust me, like one of the hardest things I've done, you know, like asking people money is, 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 is a, could be a frightening experience. But because we were successful at it, there was no going back. And it actually gave us sort of more strength and courage to pursue that creative dream. Those would be my two cents on, the, on that. Yeah. So tell me about Menstrupedia. So it is actually a 88 page graphic novel. So if you have read like comic books, and that could be uh, Tintin, Archie's, I mean, those are the popular ones here. It is of a similar format. 
So it has a nice narrative, a nice storyline of a family. But the whole book is educational and it wants to educate people on the topic of menstruation. So it's the story of a family which has two young daughters and, you know, how they experience their first biological menstruation and how they sort of like learn about it in a healthy way. What was pretty innovative for the book was our choice of format. Mostly this topic is taught in an academic way in books. So our choice of using a comic book format was pretty innovative. And two, a lot of people don't know this. While there are books that have been done on this topic, even in a comic book format, they all were last done in the in the 80s. Right. So for basically after 80s, for 20 years or so, nobody really touched this topic in this format. So, yeah, I think uh, with those couple of like insights, we were able to bring this out. And it was it has been from an impact standpoint, a very fulfilling product. So you kind of touch on this idea that this is usually covered in an academic sense. So I find it striking that you have to take kind of this complex information, big words that children probably haven't heard, and then condense it down. So I'm curious what that was like. What is that process of taking complex information, making it easy to understand for a kid? And what is the message that you want children reading it to take away? In this process of distilling this complex information down, at least one of the things that we focused on that was entirely missing in even the complex representation of this problem was the academic books or this this representation had no cultural angle to it. So while they would explain really well on how menstruation actually works biologically, they would not be able to educate the child on how do you deal with it culturally, what sort of foods to eat, you know, what sort of nutrition to take, what sort of perhaps exercises to do to alleviate the pain. So we actually focused on all this information, which is less scientific, but way more useful in the day to day. And once you take that information and put it in a storytelling format, and actually in the book, there's the younger girl child has a has an elder sister who is like a, a doctor and she's like explaining it to her. So we use that sort of trope to, to educate. It has been extremely, extremely effective in teaching that. That's super cool. I like that a lot. To your point, I think a lot of this stuff, you don't necessarily see the practical side of it. Even, you know, I was a biochem major. A lot of my friends are medical students being South Asian. That that will happen. And it's it's kind of funny because when I have discussions around them with certain topics, especially sexual topics, a lot of their training is around, like you said, the science of it, but not necessarily the practical aspect. Yeah. You know, like even, uh, and this makes me think about the mythology aspect of it, right? Like the Indian mythology is full of such good folklores about these topics. And while they might seem very unscientific at some point, at least what I appreciate about them is they, they solve the problem from a different angle, right? And quite often there were very good reasons for some of those practices. So continuing on that theme of, of storytelling, your next release was She Can, You Can, which is a book that highlights 26, what you call iconic Indian women. India has the second largest population in the world. There are 
many characters to your point from mythology but also in real life that you could have picked how did you go about picking the 26 women for that book uh <laughs> that is by far actually the the toughest part of uh of the whole production cycle of that project by the way extremely hard and uh, we made it harder f- on us because the book is actually in an a to z format so it's a for one character b for another character so in a way the name became really important or rather a method of choice for us as well we couldn't select two people with names starting with k for instance but essentially there were two steps that we did one was not worry about the final composition and completely just prepare like an exhaustive list of everyone who would like who we would like to feature first so we collected over uh, about 100 people over a period of about 18 months right it took us that long to build that exhaustive list and after that where we really focused on was making sure that the final 26 presents the full gamut of what india is from a religion standpoint from a class standpoint from a socio-cultural upbringing standpoint from a geography standpoint so what you will find is like in the final composition we have people who are equally distributed from different parts of india in different fields of work you know so it's not that one field is dominating and the other one is completely missing we especially like paid attention to the fact that in india a liberal arts curriculum is by design considered feminine quite often and not considered for, for and men have to go do all these other things right so we made sure that you know that is not what we want to reflect so we made sure that we have ample representation on the science side and there have been people or women who have done tremendous work so why the hell not i saw that sanya is featured in there the tennis player are there any stories or particular women from that book that you want to highlight or someone that you really enjoyed learning about? Quite a few, actually. Uh, when I think about it, I came to learn about this uh, woman named Janaki Amal. And she was a botanist. And this is way back in the early 1900s. I just couldn't wrap my head around that somebody from India, and once again, like humble beginnings, could go and study botany and she did a phd she went to america and like she came here and studied here and then went back and like is one of the pioneers of botany in india she took india's sugarcane production single-handedly made india like the largest sugarcane producer of the world she developed a strain of sugarcane which was basically exceptionally good my mind was blown away by what she achieved in an era where we don't typically associate with strong women a photojournalist, Homai Vyarawala, was also another one of my favorites. She was one of the first few photojournalists to actually shoot the whole uh, independence era. So I just geeked so much on her work later. And it's fascinating to see a lady draped in a sari, biking in like in Delhi summer and having like a big giant camera on her back. Because... Uh, you know, like while I can construct that image in my mind, I just cannot for the life of me construct that image with a woman in my mind. And and that really uh, forced me to rewire my own thinking in many ways. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, these are both names that 
I personally have never heard before. So it's very cool to see people highlighted in unique ways. Rajat, I have to ask the obvious question that I think a lot of listeners would be wondering. You're a 30-ish year old male. You have a son. So given your demographics, I'm curious, like what interested you in these projects to begin with? You spoke about your friends, but there's a sense of like, am I qualified to write about these topics? To be honest, I, for the longest time, did not consider myself qualified to write on any of these topics. My gender was a big part of that. I grew up in an environment where while I was around a lot of females, there was a limit to which you can interact with them. We were both basically asked to like focus on our studies, have a few friends, typically ended up being most of them male. And uh, while we were certainly not discouraged to talk or like make friends with females, we were never encouraged as well. And uh, I think this is pretty typical of growing up in the 80s, 90s in in our culture, I believe. So it took a lot of like overcoming self-nagging doubt that these are the kind of topics that I want to work on. What really helped me though is uh, besides support from my friends and whatnot, is I think like I guess really got lucky in terms of timing these ideas. This is five, seven years back. And really, I think the feminist movement and its representation on the internet was just taking off. And thankfully, I mean, now five years later, you see, I don't know about you, but at least I, on like my internet, I can see this being done by multiple people in multiple places, right? And I'm very happy about that. I have a lot of questions off that. First, it was just funny that you mentioned the thing about genders being separated in the 80s and the 90s. I don't think my parents had received that memo that that stopped <laughs> when I was in high school because that was still happening. <laughs> but, you know, another thing I, I want to highlight is just that you didn't do this alone, right? Like it, it, from what I've seen, you've had a lot of female partners in the process, whether yes. that was your wife, mm -hmm. maybe even your illustrator. You're talking about this idea of representation, right? And, and like more of this content coming out on the internet. One of the reasons I love your books is because growing up in America, I, I see a lot of picture books. The children are usually white or black, not very many Indian books, right? You are publishing in the US. And so this is kind of a unique product. But me growing up in the US, I don't really know what picture books are like in India. So in India, do you think there's a lack of representation of brown characters or is it more common there? Well, I, I wouldn't say it's lack of representation at the basis of color. However, India has its own version of lack of representation, right? Perhaps one of the easiest way to explain that is the people from northeast of India have largely been unwritten in the folklore of the country. Not only just the current, but the historical folklore as well. And that is how sort of representation works in, in books in India. Things that we try to break or, or change. In the book, we feature one lady who was a maths teacher in the northeastern part of India. But beyond that, I think I will also note that the concept of children's books itself is radically new in India. For the population we have, it is a tiny, tiny industry with very few people actually making children's books. Because, you know, like, and I'm sure you might relate to this, in our culture, 
we want our kids to be you know all educated and like go for all these degrees but this idea of reading anything outside academic text especially as a child is is just so unheard of so yeah that's why there's just simply no widespread concept of reading children's books of any sort that makes sense yeah and it's it's cool that to your point not only are you creating books but you're creating representation geographically you mentioned class earlier the topics seem very i'm assuming that these topics haven't been touched on yet there so your new project is a newsletter a monthly newsletter called boyish can you tell me what that is and i'm particularly curious if that is inspired by anything from your own life so first of all what that is it is at the moment a digital newsletter right i send basically one email a month in that email i talk about a topic which i believe boys are largely asked not to engage in sort of a practice or a hobby or an art form that boys are kept away from because boys have to be boys or boys don't cry right that kind of mentality and then i also present a story of one boy who basically did not listen to that and went ahead and did that work because that's what he was interested in to answer your second part are there sort of any personal stories that motivate the work absolutely i think no doubt about that however i will say that after i decided to write boyish i came to discover so many areas in my own life and childhood that i had completely forgotten about which i realize were part of my conditioning or were or realized that i actually had interests in those areas but uh, because i had to like adhere to a certain idea of manhood i could not do them or approach them can you give me an example of one of those the two big ones at least that intersect very well with my life dancing you know i was actually a pretty decent dancer up until my pre teens i would say and all of a sudden it just became all about academics or i mean i was allowed to play and i certainly played a lot but dancing as a form of play was not encouraged beyond a certain point the other one was uh, was drawing or art form and in, in this example actually one of the things that i realize now is the art as a hobby was not even encouraged at least for me in a in an institution like a school i very clearly remember that at one point the idea that you can bunk the arts class and go play soccer outside was completely okay and, and entertained by the institution and the downside of that was boys who wanted to stay back and actually draw were kind of bullied by others that why are you not coming and playing like the rest of us in that process like at least for me i got swept up in that in that whole process and yeah like slowly that habit died there's so much pressure to go with the norms right and if you see all your friends doing something it's not even the external pressure sometimes sometimes internally we ourselves feel like we should be doing that thing but add on top of that the fact that you're being bullied or this external pressure the fact that adults are overlooking it right it's it's yeah it's an easy circle to fall into and you've talked so much about gender norms and what they are even you mentioned earlier the liberal arts degrees were generally for the girls i'm wondering if you feel that the gender norms are different or less extreme between people in south asia 
and the diaspora. So people in the U.S., you know, South Asians in the U.S., in the U.K. Well, I certainly hope that they are less extreme here. Honestly, I don't think I'm like aware of what the reality is because this is for the first time me stepping in those shoes now, right? Like now that I have a son and only now time will tell, but I really don't have that many examples in my personal life here that can help me form an opinion. Well, as I said, I do certainly hope that they are less extreme here than than what I've witnessed uh, growing up in India. Something that's striking to me is the fact that you grew up in India, but you don't seem to carry many of these patriarchal ideas. And part of that seems to be doing this work. But I'm wondering if there was anything maybe that made you willing to do this work, or there's a reason why you didn't adhere so tightly to those beliefs, which if we're being honest, they benefited you in a way, right? True. As you said, doing the work is very helpful. It seems as a product of that thinking, but it is actually not a product. It is actually sometimes it actually helps in reinforce that thing in your mind. And that certainly has been the case for me to some degree. But beyond that, one other thing that has really been helpful for me in understanding my conditioning and changing my mindset, that I've been lucky to live in a variety of places in my life. And by the nature of that, I have been exposed to people from all sorts of places, all sorts of cultures. That has really helped me slowly unpack what ideas of masculinity are actually healthy and fun and what are some things that I need to shed in my own interpretation of it. And so how do you plan on passing these lessons on to your son? Growing up in the US, it's a very different environment from India. Are you worried about him picking up on some of these things? And uh, uh, Am I worried about him picking up on certain things? I think, yeah. To me, the larger point is that what I'm trying to make sure is he doesn't carry forward some of my conditioning to the best of my ability. That is my attempt to at least save or not save, but to make sure that my conditioning is mine and not does not become his. Because that is certainly something that I have seen people who have grown up here deal with. That while they're growing up here, their parents... They have a very different idea of, of adulthood and often their ideas are in conflict with the ideas here in the West. It's certainly very common in like in the Indian diaspora, I feel. And that is something that I just am actively trying to make sure that I don't do that. And I think working on your own conditioning is a, a good place to start on that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to look at the opposite for a second. I, I love the topic of parenting. I don't know why. Maybe this is this is an opportunity for me to break gender norms and just put that out there. Sure. Right? But what are, and these don't have to be culture or gender related, but what are a few things that you've learned through your life that you do want to pass on to your son? Hmm. That's actually a big question, but uh, let me think. Uh, I think like... For me, at least one thing that I would like to pass out to him is just to have this knack of trying out new things, whether they fail or not, whether people like them or not. And some of this ties back to Boyish as well, because, you know, Boyish is a very personal project for me. 
while it certainly talks about or tells stories of other people, it is also a sort of a deep dive into my personal point of view of what masculinity is in India. And it could very well come out as offensive or it could very well come out as completely unrelatable to a reader. However, what's important is not that. What is important is that I am trying to make my point of view in a non-controversial way without offending anyone. And I should be totally allowed to do that as well as I should feel confident to do that, right? And that is something I really wish my son picks up because if he starts to feel that there are no venues for his ideas to go out, then I think that's a very stifling place to be and is certainly not healthy. Yeah, I think that would probably be the top most thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to be concerned about. I have a couple final questions just around cultural retention. So having grown up in India, but now spending your time in the States and living in the States, have you found it difficult to hold on to Indian culture? For sure, for sure. Though I would also add that a lot of this idea of culture is very personal and an individual. We do share aspects, but at the end of the day, you know, it is a very individual point of view. So do I miss it? Yeah, but I think what I'm doing is developing sort of my own culture in a way, right? Which is uh, obviously a mix of ideas from my life in India as well as from my life in America now. So I guess you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but what aspects of Indian culture do you want to hold on to? And what aspects of American culture have you taken on or do you want to take on? So another way to put this is, us as South Asian Americans, we're kind of a blend of two cultures, right? So what would you call the best of both worlds? I do like the rational or the scientific view that, in my opinion, is sort of the underpinning of culture in the West. As I grow older, what I like to hold dear to, or, you know, I want to keep close to myself, element of Indian culture is the element of the folklores and the mythology. And I've slowly started to really appreciate that. Because, at least to me, not all ideas can be rationally explained. And more importantly, they're not fun if they're rationally explained. So, you need a way of storytelling or you need a way of folklore around even rational ideas for them to like conceptualize in your head. And that is something that I think Indian culture does really, really well. It's a very old culture. And I think a lot of people forget that, right? So there's a lot of wisdom in the mythology. Exactly. As a parent, is it important to you that your child retains Indian culture, given that it sounds like your son will pretty much be growing up in the U.S. from birth. Is it important? Certainly, yes. Whether it will happen or to what degree it will happen, I think the jury is still out. But yeah, it is certainly important for me that he retains some aspect of it. Because I think it balances out, right? I think, as I said, to me, while I would appreciate him to be have a scientific bend of mind, I think the unexplained things or ideas, those also carry a lot of weight and value. Well. 
I don't know if it's any reassurance, but I can tell you every South Asian American I've spoken to, no matter how far removed they are from South Asian culture, the one thing they always retain is food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Language goes, religion goes, yeah. but food never goes. So there will be at least one one aspect. <laughs> yeah, I agree there. Yes. Awesome. Well, Rajat, I really, really love the work that you're doing, and I'm super excited to get this out to the people. So thank you for coming on and, and speaking with me. Thank you so much for your time, Suraj. I, I enjoyed our conversation a lot. Hey, it's Suraj. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for reaching the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed our conversation today. If you did, please take a moment to share with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to follow along in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. See you on the next episode. Stay well.